the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good Friday to you, which is an unusual thing to wish. I arranged, you may have heard Archbishop Charles Chaput with me on Tuesday when we were talking about his book, Things Worth Dying For. I asked him to stick around and help me prepare our Good Friday broadcast as well. Salem's an old-fashioned kind of company, Archbishop. Everybody takes Good Friday off. That used to be kind of routine. Yeah, I know. It used to be kind of routine. And I remember the church was packed out when I would serve masses. People would do the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday. They would do the liturgy uh, in the evening and after Holy Thursday. Is that remained constant in Philadelphia? Is Good Friday still a day of reflection, repose, and repentance? No, I don't think so. Uh, when I was a kid in Concordia, Kansas, growing up, the whole town, 7,000 people, closed down from noon to 3 o'clock on Good Friday to commemorate the Jesus' time on the cross. Um, I don't think that happens anymore. Schools remain open. Businesses remain open. We've actually moved the church service in many parts of the country to evening because people don't have the freedom to attend between noon and 3 o'clock. Uh, so things have changed. Unfortunately, I think that uh, we should accommodate in our country the religious practice of, of all believers, you know, whatever uh, community they, they belong to, and recognize that and give them the personal freedom to, to commemorate those important moments. Um, we don't do that very much. And I'm disappointed. My, my kids cannot even believe that uh, the practice in the Hewitt household, uh, and I'm about your age, was that you sat in the living room quietly from noon to three. You could pray, you could have a Bible, but you did not move, you did not play, you did not, that, of course, there were no computer games. You sat in the living room for three hours, noon to three, if you weren't in church. And later on, when you could serve mass, you might be over there serving the stations of the cross. Although I don't think the stations were done noon to three then. I think they followed noon to three. They and, did, they usually did, yeah. Yeah, and what I love about your remembrance, in Things Worth Dying For, you emphasize silence. Uh, it comes back and forth. It's a it's a a sine curve in the book. You return to the value of silence. Can you explain that a little bit, Archbishop? Well, I my personal practice is to have quite a bit of silence in my life every day. I get up very early. Uh, I listen to your show, of course, but I'm up before your show begins, and I begin my day in silence because I don't think I can or I could organize my myself, especially back in the days when I was uh, full time employed without having that kind of uh, centering that takes place in what we, we refer to as prayer. But prayer is basically trying to make your life silent so you can hear the voice of God speaking to you in the course of uh, your your daily life so that uh, he can reveal his love and his plan for you um, in an ongoing kind of way. Uh, also, I think that uh, any good decisions that we make in life, any serious decisions, have to be accompanied by uh, Silence, because without that silence, everything is turmoil, and we don't have uh, the, the ability to clearly uh, think things through and uh, commit ourselves to what's really important. So we have to find time, even in, when we're busy, when we have little kids, we have to find time, I think, in a daily way, 
in our personal lives to, to have a, at least some time of silence. I do spiritual direction for uh, married couples, and uh, I, I should say married inv individuals, and I, I always try to encourage them uh, to find a place in their house where they can be quiet and then spend some time at the beginning of the day or the end of the day in that place, uh, giving God space to be part of their lives. There is a very sharp critique in Things Worth Dying For, which I want to get to now, of American life in 2020 and 2021. Very sharp critique. One of it is the noise. The other is the continual distraction. It's almost the Twitterfication. It's funny to see a quote from Peter Thiel in a book by Charles Chaput saying, we were promised flying cars and instead we got Twitter with 120 characters. It was before 140, <laughs> before they switched it. And I was amused that Peter and, and the Archbishop are together again. But you're both saying the same thing. We've ended up constantly amusing ourselves to death. You're a, friend of, uh, a fan of Nisbet as well and of sociology. That critique of modern American life, I don't know how we can reverse that, Archbishop. I don't. Well, I, I think you're right. I think it's it, we certainly won't do it unless we make up our mind to do it and and train our children to develop practices in their life where they have a chance to just slow things down and, and be quiet for a while. You know, when I was growing up, it was, it was a common practice in, in places where there were retreat centers for men and women to go off from their family for a weekend for a retreat, you know, an, an annual retreat. It wasn't just something that nuns and priests and brothers did. It was something that lay people did. Uh, we still have those retreat centers in the church, uh, but the people who attend them generally end up being you know, 60 and 70 years old rather than the young. And I, I, I think this, it really would be important for us to discipline ourselves to silence so that it can be effective at transforming our lives. Well, I read Things Worth Dying For as a message to the church as a whole, not just Catholic Christians, but to Christians uh, writ large, to understand the challenge that is ahead in a hostile culture. Now, I've worked my entire life to get the majority on the Supreme Court that we got. Uh, we finally have six originalists, and yet you point out the Bostock decision is deeply disappointing to most people who believe in a creedal faith because it treats the differences between men and women as erased. And you're right about that. I am not, um, I'm not as alarmed by you because I believe it will be subsequently narrowed if not overturned by the new court with Justice Barrett on it. But tell people why you're disappointed in the way that the legal structure in America has evolved. Well, you, you know the legal structure of America in a way I don't since you're a lawyer, but uh, I know it in terms of how it has affected our church. You know, I, I used to be naive about the legal system, too, in the United States, thinking that, you know, our country had developed a system that was uh, objective and fair. And uh, I've discovered through the course, of, especially in my life as a bishop, where I've been sued quite a number of times, uh, not personally, but, you know, sued as the head of a, of a, of a local church. I've been very disappointed about how political the uh, judicial system of our country is. That is especially the case, I think, in a, in a place like Philadelphia, where, you know, the court system here is perceived, I think, nationally as uh, is very political. Um, and when things are so political, it's difficult to get a fair hearing sometimes. And uh, I think it's even difficult today to, to stand on the principles of religious freedom, uh, you know, which have been challenged uh, so often in recent years. 
And I think this the is reason the... for that, go ahead, please. Well, I think I'm an optimist because I believe the new court will stand with the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and the lawsuit that you were forced into when it came to foster care. And I thought you set it up expertly in the book, Things Worth Dying For, by quoting the University of Pennsylvania study on the benefits of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia to the people of Philadelphia. And then you subsequent to that brought up the lawsuit. But the locals are attempting to stop the church from being in foster care because the church is adamant that children that they sponsor into foster care go into a family with one mother and one father who are biologically joined in marriage and to not two same-sex couple parents cannot uh, adopt out of the Catholic foster care system. And you defended that. That's in front of the Supreme Court. I think you're going to win, Archbishop. I'm glad you brought that lawsuit because I believe you're going to win and it's going to, to be a bright light. If it isn't, I'm really going to despair. What do your lawyers tell you? I mean, you're retired now, but what? if I'm wrong about that, I'm really wrong about everything. Well, I hope you're right about that. And uh, our lawyers are very optimistic. We're blessed to have the Beckett Fund managing the case for us. Otherwise, we couldn't afford it. You know, that's, they've been extraordinarily helpful to us uh, with that case. Uh, but there's still a chance we'll lose it. You know, they, they, everybody knows that you don't have a decision until you have a decision. So we pray and hope for the best. Uh, but, you know, our church can't recognize uh, same-sex marriage as being marriage because uh, uh, we're, we think that the order of creation that's described in the book of Genesis is God's plan for the world. And he, he made us male and female, and he, he told us to increase and multiply. And same-sex uh, marriage ring don't, uh, don't lead to the, the increasing and multiplying. I mean, of course, you, you can artificially conceive a child these days, but that's not the same at all. And uh, it's really contrary to what we, we call the... the the original order of creation, which is God's plan. And for us to try to change that is really an act of idolatry where like Adam and Eve, we want to be like God and make decisions for ourselves rather than submit to God's plan for us. And, and the most bracing thing and things worth dying for on this Good Friday show is that you say there is no concordant of possible. And when we come back from break, I want to talk about there will, there will be no peace agreement between the church and the culture because there can't be, given what the church teaches. It's bracing, it's clear, it's firmly stated. His new book, Things Worth Dying For, available in bookstores everywhere. I want to go to page 23, Archbishop. I mentioned it before the break. Believers can expect a difficult road. There can be no concordant between the Christian understanding of human identity, dignity, and sexuality, and the contempt directed at our belief by so much of our emerging culture. The world and its hatreds won't allow it. I've always thought there might be a separate piece available where the believing Christian would be left alone. That's clearly not going to be the case. So they either are going to have to win and reestablish their freedom to believe and to practice their belief, or they're going to be, uh, I don't know what's going to happen, actually. The, the gloomy side of your book is you don't know what's going to happen either, and the light could go completely out in America. That's right. You know, I certainly hope that's not the case, but the, our country doesn't have the same kind of guarantee that, uh, that Jesus gave his church community where he said he'd be with us always and the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. But unfortunately, that's not the promise God's made to our country. So in order for our country to uh, effectively live uh, energetically into the future, I think it has to recommit itself to its founding principles, embrace them wholeheartedly, not make exceptions to them, 
because of a changing culture. Uh, because if we don't have a, a common commitment to what our Constitution stands for, there's no, there's no way of, for our country to hold, would hold together. Because the only thing that holds us together is the Constitution, because we come from many different places, many different backgrounds. We don't have a common language anymore even, although you know, English is certainly spoken by most people in our country. But what holds us together is the Constitution. So we have to love it and be committed to it. And we have to have free exercise. People have to be able to exercise their faith, in the case of Philadelphia, through a foster care program that says we are only going to place children into um, uh, married couples, one man, one woman, who are committed to each other for life. And that's where children ought to be reared. You've got the evidence, again, in the book that that is best for the child. But Philadelphia does not want you to have that. And that's really just one of many battles going on. A lot of Catholic leaders won't fight those battles, Archbishop. Well, I, I think people are afraid to uh, to fight because they're afraid they're going to lose, or because they they just don't want the burden of not being in the mainstream. And certainly, where the church stands on some of these issues isn't where mainstream elite America is uh, going. And uh, I think the, we really hope, hope many people hope that uh, it'll go away if we just wait long enough. But it's not going to go away. There's, there's just no compromise. One thing I've learned uh, often in life is that when the left is in charge, they do not compromise. They, they don't actually tolerate people who are different. They're always calling for tolerance when they're on the, in the minority. But when they take charge, they, they take over and they try to ram things down uh, the throats of those they disagree with. For example, this question of child care, there, there's plenty of opportunity for people in same-sex relationships and marriages to be foster care parents in Philadelphia. That just there are many other institutions that don't see that as an issue and are happy to arrange the, the care of foster children through uh, through their agency. We we can't do that because it compromises our understanding of what it means to what marriage and family life means. Why can't they just leave us alone? They can't. They have to insist that uh, that we give up what we believe. Because somehow what we believe is a burning fire to them, and they just can't tolerate uh, the criticism that comes from us being different. You're pretty clear on that, Archbishop. The uh, Catholic Church and Christianity generally make truth claims. Uh, they make claims about what is true and what is right. And when you make a truth claim, you inflict guilt or an argument on those who don't agree. That's right. And uh, our understanding of truth is that it's objective and it exists apart from opinion. And there's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And the role of human beings is try to align our minds to uh, the truth that's apart from us, outside ourselves. And we believe that, of course, is a, that truth is a gift from God and not something of our own making. I'll be right back with Archbishop Charles Chaput. Don't go anywhere, America, except to Amazon.com. Get his new book, Things Worth Dying For. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm an Archbishop Charles Chaput, who is my guest. And of those four great Catholic intellectuals, I talked to the Archbishop the most because he's normal and, and I understand him. You wrote your book to be understood, Archbishop, and I, I, I did at the end of it, I do what I normally do when a book of popular philosophy is in front of me in popular history. What were you aiming at? What, what impression did I take away? And my notes at the beginning, general thought, the Archbishop is content. The Archbishop is not disappointed. The Archbishop is concerned, but he is not gloomy. He knows the immense work to be done, but it's been done again and again. How do you like my summary of what your book left me with? 
Uh, well, I hope all those things are true. I don't know if I'm one of those uh, top intellectuals, and you forgot to add yourself to that group. You, <laughs> I'm the talk show. <laughs> that we're, well, we're proud that you're an intellectual, though. You're a conservative intellectual, and even though you are an unusual kind of Catholic, since you're a Presbyterian Catholic, uh, you're a very good Catholic, and we're very, very grateful to God for that and proud of Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am a bit more um, disappointed about the way life has gone than the book would uh, indicate, I think. I, I'm worried very much about the future of our country and the future of our Catholic Church um, and Christianity in general, of course. Uh, what I, I, I'm a person of hope. I, your, one of your guests this week talked about hope not being a good strategy. Well, I think it's a necessary strategy for uh, people who are believers because uh, we trust that God's going to bring all this to a, a good conclusion in the end, even though we have a lot of indications it's not going in the right direction. So I hope that the book does encourage people to recommit themselves. And in order to recommit yourself, you have to have some kind of hope, whether that's in a marriage or in a job or whatever. Hope is kind of a, a fundamental strategy for living life to its fullness. Which I hope hope I'm gets Christian across the river. I, you know, That's Pilgrim's true. Progress is a book that has eluded me forever. I've tried, I've started it 25 times, Archbishop. I've never finished it. Uh, the language is just not. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I love the Lewis. I'll read Chesterton. I'll read Tolkien endlessly. Pilgrim's Progress, I'm glad you summarized it because I've never finished it. But you have Christian the Pilgrim on the gates of heaven. He has to get across the river, and his last friend is hope. That's right. And, uh, I think that's necessary for all of us. Uh, even when we're on our deathbed, I think we have to hope that things are going to end up all right at uh, that passage from this life to, to the next one. Uh, by the way, I share your your uh, your uh, difficulty with uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It is a difficult book for modern people to read because of its style, but a lot of the classics are. You know, I, yeah. I tried to I tried to reread. Um, uh, which one was it? Uh, Count on a Cristo last year, and found it very, very difficult to read. Even though I loved it when I was a young kid, and I read it. Yeah. Uh, my my that, taste in books has changed. Well, you are you are a lover of history as I am, and I think that that comes through. But you also read a lot more church history than I do. And before we go to break, and we'll come back next hour, what what is the emphasis on church history? Why do you think that's so important for even laymen to know? Well, uh, we need to know that the church, we, you know, we Catholics have a unique understanding of the church in the Christian community. I don't know if many Protestants would refer to the church as Holy Mother the Church. Uh, people see the church as a community of believers, uh, important to their lives. But for Catholics, the church has an identity apart from a particular time and place that she really is our mother from whom we receive life. And because of that, it's important to know the history of your, your family, your, your mother. And uh, in, we've had difficult times in the church in recent years, you know, the sexual abuse scandal, for example. But if you understand church history, you see that the church has recovered from horrible kinds of experiences like that in the course of history. Uh, the, in some ways, the worst being the, the uh, Protestant Reformation, where the church was deeply divided and remains divided uh, because of that. Uh, so reading history helps you not to repeat it if, you, if it's bad history, and also to have some kind of hope and consolation if things aren't going really smoothly. And we learn from the, people who are smarter than us. You know, people in the past were sometimes smarter than we are. Yeah, the the great the lowest point of the book, 
but it's not the low point of your life is going to the synods, three of them, the first one good, the second two, not so good. And you remarked that you were scandalized at the conduct of the synod. And I want people to understand that's not exactly new in the Catholic Church, right? Machiavellian politics in the church go back a long time. Yes, but, you know, people uh, like myself don't expect that to be the case. So I really do have an idealized expectation around church and especially the church at the highest echelons. And, uh, and having become a bishop, I've seen that that expectation is not ever met and that uh, sometimes uh, the things we idealize uh, are just as uh, incompetent as we are ourselves. And uh, you know, it, it really was, as you say, Machiavellian, my experience at the two most recent synods that I attended. When we come back, stay tuned, America. When I talk at length with the Archbishop, uh, we're going to be talking about death and dying, thoughts at the end of a career as you've got 10, 20, 30 years left of life. Uh, the road ahead is a lot shorter than the road behind. Archbishop Chaput does it all in this book, Things Worth Dying For, which I strongly recommend to all of you on this holy week. Uh, the reading that you might want to do if you didn't do anything during Lent, right here, Things Worth Dying For. Stay tuned. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, joined by my friend, Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia. Hello, Archbishop. How are you? I am just fine, Hugh. How are you this morning? Well, I'm troubled. Uh, you know, in our in our many, many conversations over the years, I've reconciled with the fact you're a Steelers fan, an Eagles fan, a Broncos fan. But until I read your new book, um, uh, Things Worth Dying For, I did not know you had a Detroit connection. You're actually <laughs> in the... <laughs> I did not know the Michigan stuff until this, so I want to get that out of the way for people. We started high. Let's go low right away. You go back to a governor general of Detroit. You're partially responsible then for Detroit being in the union. We could have left that with Canada. I, I imagine so, but I didn't have anything personally to do with that. I was just blessed with good ancestors. I was fascinated, actually, by your family history and the point that you make about why we love it. Give people a little sense of the name Chaput and where it comes from and how far. I had no idea. I had you pegged as the Potawatomi Indian, the tribe member, first Native American archbishop, all that stuff. Didn't know about Louis the Thirteenth, Henry the Thirteenth. Actually, it was Louis the Ninth. Louis the Ninth. A saint. He was a saint in the in the Catholic Church. Uh, on my mother's side, uh, we have an ancestry that goes back into France uh, very clearly. But uh, one of my ancestors was Robert Navarre, who was the governor general of Detroit. And one of his sons, uh, I guess, became a fur uh, trader and traveled down to uh, Indiana, what is now Indiana, where he met my great, 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 six times back uh, grandmother, who was a Potawatomi Indian. Her name was Angelique Ketchkway. And uh, their family eventually was removed from uh, Indiana, uh, ended up in Kansas. And, that's where my French-Canadian uh, grandfather uh, uh, met uh, his wife, and my mother was born, and that's uh, my uh, connection. That's why I like that chapter a lot. In, in fact, at dinner last night with Bud the Contractor, I was recounting your genealogy and preparing for this interview, and I said to him, I think older people, and I'm included among this, uh, love genealogy because it reminds us that we have long paths and we have long futures in the form of our children and our descendants and our collateral descendants and the world. So if you look backwards, you're actually looking forwards. And that's why you recounted it, including whether or not uh, you're related to St. Louis. I don't know, but you don't know. But it's fun to think about 
and people are now focused on it and it's important i tell my law students archbishop on the first day of class you didn't get here you're in a law classroom and there are two stories the stories of your country and the stories of your family and we talk about that because everybody gets here by a long line yes uh, i think it's important to mention our country too because our country is our ancestors on another level and if we don't know uh, that ancestry our country's in trouble just like our family's in trouble if we don't know our ancestors uh, biologically now archbishop that brings us to the book this is the third in a trilogy i'm holding up my very well thumbed copy of things worth dying for my four page outline last night it was five pages i got it down to four so we're going to take a long time talking about this but things worth dying for i described it on twitter as a summing up is that fair uh, in some sense it is i i imagine i have some life left so there are some more things to go on but it's uh in some way, people ask me, when did I begin to write the book? And uh, in terms of the book itself, probably uh, two years ago already. Uh, but in terms of the overall picture that's involved in the book, a lifetime, 76 years now. I think all of us who write and give talks like you do, uh, base that on a, a lot of material that we're not even conscious of. That's been part of our life uh, through the years. Your library must be immense, and I don't know what you're going to do with it. I don't know what I'm going to do with mine, but I have, I read in uh, Things Worth Dying For, a lot of authors that I do not know very well, like Roger Scruton. I just don't know anything about him. I, I've seen him read and referenced. You rely heavily on him, for example. Let's take a diversion, as I often will in this. Tell us about him and why you love him so much. Well, Roger Scruton died uh, last year, I believe, in 2020. Right. And he, he was British, of course, and uh, reflected on uh, history and culture and philosophy uh, in a way that was popularized by some of the television shows that he did. And uh, I, I find him fascinating because uh, I think he presents in language that's uh, easy to understand. And visuals, when it comes to his, uh, his videos, uh, very important parts of what it means to be a human being. You know, he's, uh, he's uh, in a very contemporary way uh, immersed in what we call the transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness. And uh, those are the three things that make life worth living, you know, things that are true and beautiful and good. And if we dedicate ourselves to uh, embracing a life that involves those uh, three characteristics, we're going to be very, very happy human beings. If we don't, we're going to be unhappy. In terms of my library, I gave it away already when I moved into uh, – Retirement, I gave most of my books to the seminary here in Philadelphia. I have reference books, of course, that I brought with me. But uh, I've moved to a Kindle in terms of reading, so I'm not collecting books in, in the present like I collected books in the past. You know, I, I'm glad someone wanted them. I, read, I have to read a hard copy. I have to annotate it. I have to make notes in the margins yes. so I can go back and do an outline. So when I give them away, some people don't like them. Things Worth Dying For is in demand. People always want my books because they're free when I'm done with them. And I'll, I'll find a good Catholic friend to give Things Worth Dying For. But I want to stay on Scruton for a second. When I went back, a good book leads you to other authors. And so I went and read up on him. He went to Jesus College in Cambridge, and then he taught at the University of London. And his life was one great struggle with the current culture. And so I found that very interesting. And given the previous books you wrote, Strangers in a Strange Land, Render Under Theater, and now Things Worth Dying For. This is a book very much about fighting for what you believe in and for what Catholic Christians believe in specifically. You are not at all tremulous 
in urging people to witness their faith? Well, you know, one of the things that is considered a um, negative factor is to refer to somebody uh, today, to refer to somebody as a culture warrior. Um, but I've always, people talk about me that way, and I've never actually understood why it's an insult. They mean it. <laughs> when, they, when they call me that, they mean it as an insult. But I think that anybody who lives life seriously is in some ways a, someone who's fighting for um, important principles upon which to build life. And culture is the combination of all the things that make up our lives. So we should all, all be culture warriors. Moms and dads are culture warriors when it comes to their children. You know, so it's a very positive thing and nothing to be ashamed of. And, you know, again, fight, fighting is not a popular thing to talk about these days or a warrior culture uh, because uh, you know, military, military life and activity isn't considered in the same kind of way it used to be even 40 years ago. But I, I think, I, I don't believe in violence. I think it's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, unless it's violence in the service of the good, the true, and the beautiful. But we still have to be willing to fight for things. And I, I want to make sure in every segment that we do, I, I pronounce the key finding in the book. Uh, and I want to do it from page 21. Jesus of Nazareth really did live. It's Holy Week. It's important to say this. Archbishop Chaput says, Jesus of Nazareth really did live. He really was the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah. He really did suffer and die and rise for us. And the proof is the fire he left in the hearts of those who knew him, a passion that reworked the course of the world. It is Holy Week. Unless people accept that premise, things worth dying for will not make a lick of sense to them. I don't think so. I hope it's very much based on Jesus and the scriptures. Of course, a lot of it's based on the Old Testament, as you know, by the Jewish scriptures, because we who are Christians consider the Jewish people our elder brothers and sisters, and we stand on their shoulders. Uh, but that's the, the foundation of my life and the life of uh, uh, people from whom I came, and I'm grateful for that gift. I, I'm grateful that you made it very explicit. I want to play for you the clip in 30 years of radio, I tell people this is the most astonishing exchange I had. And okay. it's with R Richard Dawkins, uh, the, uh, the anti-belief expert in Great Britain. And we're talking, and here's what he says. Okay, do you believe Jesus turned water into wine? Yes. You seriously do? Yes. You actually think that Jesus got water and made all those molecules turn into wine? Yes. My God. Yes. Okay. My I God, actually, not yours. <laughs> so, Archbishop, he Good kind of... Well, no, but he summed up the attitude that you talk about in Things Worth Dying For. We are living in a culture that is increasingly, it's not just postmodern, it's not just post-Christian, it's hostile to Christianity. It's hostile to Christianity for a lot of reasons. I think primarily because Christianity, if lived faithfully, challenges, uh, challenges a lot of the givens of our culture that the culture is very attached to. Uh, for example, um, you know, human life and uh, marriage, as we understand it, as Christians, uh, is not respected very much in the culture of the United States today. Abortion is accepted in a common kind of way. And the meaning of marriage, of course, has been changed very much and even dismissed. People aren't marrying like they used to. They're not having children at all like they used to. Uh, and a lived Christianity challenges those kind of basic things of life, you know, the, the meaning of life itself and the meaning of family, the, the two things that are at, at the heart of who we are as individuals and as communities. And because of that, the, the church is under attack all the time in very unjust ways by people who don't really understand the church.
When we come back, I'm going to talk at length about the Philadelphia lawsuit, but I do want people to know, I haven't even begun to go through the book yet, uh, Family is at its center. And I don't know if you organized your chapters. You put the World Family Conference that you oversaw in Philadelphia right at the center of your book, Things Worth Dying For, sort of a capstone of your ecclesiastical career. And it did what it was intended to do. It elevated family as a key part of Christian life. Is that the thing of which you are proudest, Archbishop, of your work? Uh, it certainly was an extraordinary event, and uh, I'm deeply grateful to the people of Philadelphia who made it even possible. It cost a lot of money at a time when we were really broke as a church, and it took hours and hours and hours of thousands of people putting it all together. And of course, we're grateful to the Pope and the people in Rome for making Philadelphia the center of this, uh, this gathering, and I'm, I'm happy that Pope Francis came for it. Uh, would it be the, the most important thing I've done in life? I don't think so. I think that baptizing a baby is more important than any of that. And uh, witnessing a Christian marriage is more important than any of that. Forgiving someone's sin at the confession is more important than any of that. All those things, who's going who's to remember the world meeting of families in a few years, but they'll remember the baptism of their child and the marriage of their spouse. Okay, uh, so I'll pick up on that because it was a big public witness of faith in the United States. That's why I liked it. Uh, it, it was an 800,000 people. Is that how many people turned out on the day that you and Francis went through town? At least that many. I was blessed to ride along on the Pope Mobile and see all of them. And they were really uh, incredible crowds. Well, what it, what it sent to me, what it should have said to the entire United States is do not underestimate the deposit of faith in the United States. And well, I think it's much true. bigger than DC culture and elite culture. One of the themes of things worth dying for is that elite culture has to be resisted. Is that a fair statement, Archbishop? I, I certainly agree with you 100%. I think that elite culture is the most worrisome part of the culture of our time. And why is that? Because it's, it's uh, arrogant and because it, it uh, is uh, in the process of trying to lead our country in the wrong direction in, in so many ways. Um, you know, it, it's the greatest threat to our country from the right or from the left. I've been absolutely convinced throughout my life uh, that it's from the left. You know, I, back when I was a younger man, uh, before I became a priest, even when I first became a priest, I would be much, I would have been much more sympathetic with the liberal side of things. But as time has gone on, I've seen that that leads, has led and continues to lead people in the wrong direction, both in terms of personal development, but also in terms of the, the, the basic values of our country. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. 
I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Morning, Gloria America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this Good Friday special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. My guest this hour, Archbishop Charles Chaput, has a brand new book out, Things Worth Dying For. It follows his previous books, Render Unto Caesar and Strangers in a Strange Land. He wrote it in retirement after he had to retire, and it's got, and I, I told this archbishop to my friend, Dr. Mark Roberts, this weekend. We were having a meal together, and he's writing a lot about the aging part of America, the final third of America. And you're writing about the final third of life, about death. And he immediately went and bought it on his Kindle, said he's got to read what you have to say about it, because you have more behind you than you have in front of you. Even if we go long, my grandfather went to 101. I don't know if you have a long live gene in your family. Maybe we'll go long, but we're both on the other, we're on the downslope, you and I both. And so I've often thought about death and dying back to when I sat down with the Dalai Lama in 96. He told me he thinks about it every day. Your whole second chapter is about preparing for death by thinking about it and why that's important. Can you expand on why? I mean, you wanted to write, it's not gloomy, by the way, it's, it's happy, but it's necessary. Well, I think it is necessary for Christians. Uh, those of us who grew up as Catholics can remember holy card pictures we saw as kids where uh, saints were pictured holding a skull in their hand or a skull was on the desk where they were sitting writing. And uh, for people who don't come from the Catholic tradition, that might seem like really strange stuff, but it's really something uh, that's very important for life. That in, in order to live life fully, we have to understand where life's going. And if, as a believer, we believe that the options at the end are heaven or hell, which is what Christians believe, then uh, we ought to live our lives with one eye on the future, uh, which to help us make sure that we make decisions in the present that lead us in that direction. You know, our understanding of, of hell um, is separation from God that's a result of our own decisions, that we've become the kind of persons by our decisions that have excluded God and other people from our lives. And we're not able to, to, to receive the gift of eternal life because we're so preoccupied with ourselves. It's like an eternal pout in the face of God's goodness. And uh, so I, I think that uh, thinking about death in the terms of not, not the suffering of death or the, the, the pain of losing your but just thinking about our future, our eternal future, helps us to live good lives. You know, my friend David Allen White was the first one who introduced me to the four last things. I don't know, I, I skipped it in 12 years of parochial education. No one ever wrote out the four last things, which are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And his admonition, which is I find in things worth dying for, is that every Catholic, and that would be more generally every Christian, ought to reflect every day on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Can you expand on why that practice? When, when did that get started, Archbishop? Well, you know, I, I uh, remember my pastor when I was a, a child in grade school preaching about the four last things, Monsignor Emil Duchesne. I have happy memories of him. He was a very good priest. Uh, and he would give a Helen Brimstone uh, talk about hell and heaven uh, more than once a year. 
So it really was, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm 10 years older than you, or maybe more, I don't know exactly, but uh, uh, so we really did hear those kind of things, uh, and they were important for, for us. Um, uh, you know, we, we Catholics also believe in purgatory, which is a, a, a position we take contrary or different, I should say, from our Protestant brothers and sisters, because we believe that death, we might, we might need to be purified in, in order to fully enter into the presence of God's love for us. Uh, so, uh, but our understanding of purgatory would be it's part of heaven, because in the end, there's only two things, either heaven or hell, and, uh, and purgatory is just a process of being more fully incorporated into what we call heaven. Yeah, I, I'm glad you actually spent a lot of time, because it's very difficult to explain purgatory to a non-Catholic. It's got to be sort of a daily understanding that you've won. You got the lotto ticket. You just can't cash it in for a while. And sometimes uh, the, the, the turning into the lotto ticket may require quite a journey, and it may not be pleasant. Uh, you do well, not you, downplay you, suffering. You know, one of the, the things that I, I like to do with my sister, I have an older sister. We have a very good relationship, but I tell her that when we die and are standing before the judgment of God, I'm going to know all of her sins. She just hates the, the thought that I would know all of her, all of her sins. But that's what we believe. We believe that in, in the presence of God, uh, that you, I'll know all your sins and you'll know all mine. And the things that are hugely embarrassing to us will become public knowledge. And, and they won't be a source of shame for us so much as uh, an opportunity for us to give glory to God for loving us despite our sinfulness. But you know what it's like to be humiliated and to be deeply humiliated. And in some ways we can say that's an image of purgatory where we just, it, we're, we, we come to know how sinful we are and how uh, we've rejected the graces of God in our life. It's going to be hugely embarrassing. And to grow out of that into accepting the, the mercy and, and love of God is what is a process of being purified. Purgation, that's where the word purgatory comes from. So it's not a place. It's a, it's a state of being uh, purified for the fullness of God's love. Now, in uh, Things Worth Dying For, you make about a dozen references to the gift of confession. That is something Catholics appreciate and non-Catholics may not. Non-Catholics think, why would you want to do that? Would you explain the grace of confession, Archbishop? Because on Good well, Friday, I don't know if confessions are heard on Good Friday. I don't think they are, are they? Uh, they, they should be, and they are well, they should in be. most churches. Yeah, I think that there was a period of time when uh, priests uh, thought they shouldn't your confessions during Holy Week, and they try to get everybody to go to confession before Holy Week began, but it didn't work. You know, no. people showed up on Good Friday and Holy Saturday wanting to go to confession. So I think people should have the confession available to them whenever they need it. But anyway, our understanding of confession, I think that uh, our Protestant brothers and sisters do believe in confession. They just don't believe that a priest can absolve their sins. And because we, we all find confession to be, to be extraordinarily important in all of our relationships, you know, husbands have to confess to their wives they're, they're failing sometimes, and vice versa, wives have to do the same. Uh, uh, we all go to, uh, to our friends when we're burdened by something we've done, and we need someone to understand us. Uh, people go to counseling a lot these days in order to seek some kind of reconciliation with what they've done. So we go to <laughs> bartenders, joke that, you know, bartenders hear more confession than priests do, and I imagine in some ways that's true. So confession isn't the issue. It's whether or not Jesus has given his church the power to forgive sins. And 
Catholics believe that uh, he has and that that authority to speak in his name uh, is uh, given to uh, priests. Uh, you know, we, we know in St. John's Gospel, Jesus said, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And our understanding of, of Christian tradition is that authority has been placed in the hands of the, the clergy of the church. So, uh, so confession isn't the issue. It's whether or not Jesus's words about uh, the church having the authority to forgive sins resides in the in the minister. Right? Now, this might be a prompt. This might be a prompt for people to go to confession on Holy Friday, et cetera. But uh, I read everything you read, you write, with the understanding you've heard thousands of confessions. And I so you have an, you had an advantage over every other writer that I read who's not a priest because you've actually heard the real deal. I mean, that's people are supposed to tell you what they've done wrong and what's wrong with their life and what's right with their life in a confession. It's not a therapy session, right? It's not that. But you have a, depth, a, a deep reserve of knowledge that the ordinary layman will not have. What does that knowledge tell you, Archbishop? Well, it tells me two things. It tells me how good we are because people who go to confession want to be different. They want to be good. Uh, that's why they, they come. They, they want peace with God, but they also want to change. And that's what confession is all about in our Catholic understanding. It's not about just dumping our sins. It's about committing ourselves to a, a, few, a new and better future, uh, conversion and, and change. Uh, I've seen confessions really do change people, people who are in the habit of sin, who go to confession in a regular way, kind of grow out of that habit because of the grace of, of God, not because of the words of the ministers, because of the grace of God working in that context. Um, so confession has revealed to me the, the depths of human goodness. But at the same time, I've heard horrible things. You know, we're, we don't talk about what we hear in confession, but I want you to assure you, I've heard everything. Uh, as you can imagine, that you would think about the Ten Commandments and uh, and uh, there are a lot of things that people do that are just utterly destructive in human dignity. Uh, the biggest thing in confession is is our sexual things, quite honestly. Um, uh, I'm glad to know there aren't a lot of murderers running around <laughs> that we don't know about. <laughs> well, there's surprisingly more of those than, than you know, actually, too. That's another <laughs> the other thing that you, you know, think. But the biggest thing is or the things that people are most ashamed of, are in some ways, the things that are most common, like sexual sexual temptations and sins. Uh, even in this postmodern, we'll talk about that, because even in our postmodern age, we're not supposed to worry about that anymore, but we do, uh, and it's not Catholic we, guilt. That's right, exactly. It's human nature to worry about. We'll be right back. Archbishop Charles Chaput of Philadelphia is my guest. Things Worth Dying For is his brand new book. Archbishop, in it, you write about the tipping point. Tipping points happen in the lives of a people, a culture, and a nation. Points beyond which everyday reality is changed in kind, not merely in degree. We're living in such a moment today. And because we're within it, we won't understand its implications clearly until the future renders our time now in the rearview mirror. We were just talking about confession and human sexuality and what you've heard in the confessional. And I was thinking of violence and hatred and you brought up sexuality. That is the change in the modern world. I mean, it's completely different. And we have no idea where that's going to take us. Um, where do you Absolutely think it's true. going to take where do you think it's going to end up? Well, I, I imagine that it's going to end up with a, uh, a big change in, in, for the better, because I think you can only live with uh, uh, acting against the, the basic nature of man for long before you have to kind of swing back to what's uh, good and true and, 
and uh, and beautiful. And it seems to me that uh, our sexual license um, will end up in a in a change of the culture for the better. It's happened historically many times, you know, where the, there's been corruption and there's a recommitment to to uh, the principles that we stand on. So I'm hoping for that because I, I think that, you know, the, the uh, human failures when it comes to sexuality lead to failures in marriage and family life. And, and a lack of fidelity between husband and wife is a horrible thing because it undermines children's confidence and their ability to know that they're loved by their parents. So, uh, you know, that when, when you talk about sex, you're talking about family and uh, the impact, uh, misusing our sexuality is in some ways undermining our family life. And uh, there's nothing more important for us because everything in life flows through the family, everything for good or bad. That is a central tenet of Things Worth Dying For. But you are very familiar with dystopian fiction. In fact, you introduced me in Things Worth Dying to, our, to a Russian novel called We, which I've not heard of before, but it clearly influenced Huxley and Orwell. You make the argument, you lay it out how it did. And all three of those novelists end up in sexual dystopia as well. Uh, it's sort of the natural impulse is, is channeled into non-familial, non-connected biological urges. And it's funny to me that all three, the Russian and the two Englishmen, predict sort of sexual license in their dystopian novels of the future. Yeah, I think the, even the modern movies that talk about the future go in that direction usually, um, because I think uh, it, it's a future without a family. And without the connections of uh, of loving a spouse and and having your own children, who depend on you as uh, their mother or their father, uh, so there's just no way for us to separate family from sexuality. And uh, when we do, our future is in bad shape, very bad. Shape. Now that's very tough sell in the modern culture, and it's always been. One of the things you did is you sent a lot of letters off to your friends, laymen, religious priests, and they wrote you back. And I found their answers very interesting. No one seemed to be worried about the decrease in attendance in the church. No one, no one brought that up to you. I, I was surprised by that. I, I think that's true because uh, the people who I wrote to, of course, I wrote to them because I knew that they loved the church community and were committed to it. And I think people who love the church community know that it isn't dependent on large numbers. In fact, large numbers in some ways have gotten in the way of the Catholic Church's ability to be a real community. One of the things that many of us who are Catholics admire about Protestant churches is their, they have a deeper sense of family and belonging. And I think the reason for that is basically they have one church service a, a, a Sunday, and after that service, they get together as a community. And no one enters into the church without being welcomed by somebody else. And, the, you know, the way the Catholic Church has operated, because uh, the large number of Catholics in, in the country is they stack one service up against another. Every hour and a half, there's a new service, which eliminates the ability to welcome and also to spend time afterwards. And uh, so I, I don't think anybody looks at the diminution in numbers of the church as a good thing in itself. But it, it, it really, we're weeding out the people who don't take church seriously in some ways. They're just not coming anymore. It's self-selection. It's not like anybody's kicking these people out. But the, the opportunity that provides is for the church to be stronger, in a sense, because people are more uh, connected to one another. And that connection uh, used to come in the parochial school system after the Hugh Hewitt show, Things Worth Dying For, is the Archbishop's brand new book. 
a great thing to buy on Good Friday or any day of the year and to reflect, along with his other books, Stranger in a Strange Land and Render Under Caesar. Archbishop, I was talking about the future of the Catholic Church. Um, your book reminded me a little bit of Lincoln's second inaugural, uh, just a little bit, because you say we remain a great and a good nation, but a nation of chronic racial injustice, agreed, deep sexual dysfunction, undeniable, self-flattering elites, I live among them, I'm part of them, great disparities in wealth, uh, a true, and intentional destruction of more than 50 million unborn children, entire generations of a now dead future. These things carry a heavy social mortgage, a balloon payment that must and will be paid. In Lincoln's second inaugural, he says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of the Civil War may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said, 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln, I don't even know if you treasure the second inaugural as much as I do, but your book is full of justice will come out. I mean, you're very much a justice will triumph in the end. Well, of course, I admire Lincoln very much and I stand in amazement at his ability to say things so beautifully and clearly with so few words. I haven't ever been able to do that. Uh, but, you know, the, the whole business of justice will end up, uh, show up, is uh, what the Bible's all about, whether it's the Hebrew Bible or the Christian uh, addition to that, the New Testament. It, God is a just God, and an essential part of justice is judgment. You know, we don't like judgment these days. We, we uh, we say we shouldn't judge one another because the scriptures tell us that. But what they mean, what the scriptures mean by that is we shouldn't judge someone's heart or their soul. That doesn't mean we shouldn't judge what are good acts and what are bad acts. And uh, when we stand at the end of our life, we're going to enter a process of self-judgment in the presence of God that will lead either to um, eternal happiness or eternal separation from God and from other people, which we call hell. Uh, so judgment is an essential part of any uh, community that's, that's built on, on truth. And uh, I just hope and that I'm on the right side of that judgment. I think you are. And I think the laser focus of things worth dying for is the culture around us, which is a culture of contempt for religious belief. I mean, it, it's in the water. It's in the air. Contempt for believing what you and I believe that, as I said at the, be, at the beginning of our conversation, I, I won't repeat it. Jesus is real. And if you believe that, and you believe that he died, uh, uh, descended into hell, and rose from the dead and lives forever, and that if you trust in him, he will take care of you, and Jesus is the face of God. That's the, the basic message of uh, things worth dying for. Things will be all right. But this age, not just mocks, which is okay. I mean, everybody gets mocked. But contempt is different from mockery. Contempt devalues dignity. Contempt that for which we have contempt, we kick to the side. And your book is a great admonition to be strong against contempt, which is what Catholic education used to do. I, that's why I'm so distraught over the destruction of Catholic education. It used to teach you you didn't care what they said about you. And so Catholic kids after 12 years, they, didn't, they just don't care what goes on at campus. If it's gone, they're not braced up that way. 
uh, is there a renewal in Catholic education ahead of us, Archbishop? Uh, Hugh, I don't really know. Uh, Catholic education, we know it in the United States, was built on the back of religious sisters who uh, were available in great numbers to teach in Catholic schools without being paid a decent salary. I know in my hometown, each sister received $40 a month as her salary. That was $10 a week. They were provided housing at the convent, but they, they didn't really receive a significant amount of money in terms of salary. And in those days, we used all the money that came in to build the buildings at our parochial schools. Now we're living in a time where those buildings are falling apart, literally, and we, we have to pay a, a living wage to lay people who are the teachers in our schools. So how can this continue into the future? I just don't know. I, I personally think that the future of Catholic education is going to be in cooperative homeschooling, where the parishes provide the buildings where this can happen and the connectors that make it possible for people to meet. And uh, that'll make it affordable. The reason Catholic education is not working now is because it's not affordable, because it was built on presuppositions that don't exist anymore, about large numbers of people going to church and giving a little bit of money uh, in order to support the institutional activities of the church. Now we don't have large people, large numbers of people coming, and they're still giving the same amount of little money. Generally, Catholics are not very good givers when it, compared with uh, Jewish and Protestant uh, believers. And so I think Catholic education has to change if it's going to be successful. Otherwise, it becomes an education for the very poor, because people really do feel sorry for the poor and pour money into poor schools, or to the very wealthy who pay, you know, there are some schools that pay $20,000 a year for elementary school and some private, elite private uh, Catholic elementary schools. But the, the middle class or the blue collar neighborhoods can't sustain Catholic education as we've known it in the past. I want to, you know, the thing that encouraged me the most about the recent bill that passed Congress, President Biden's first act, was that it included $300 um, a month for children under six and $250 a month for children 17 to six. And I urged my audience, enroll your child in a Catholic school. And a I, lot of people I heard said, you do that. I well, do that. I, I don't. Well, the response, though, was that's not enough money. To which my response is, the Catholics will find a way to make it work if you'll just commit to them. Is that right? We, we always have, yes. We were able to educate children at a far lower cost than the public education system, uh, primarily because we don't have the infrastructure uh, to support the, the, the uh, programs that public education does. And unfortunately, we don't pay teachers as much either. But, you know, what you said about uh, we have a lot of empty spaces in Catholic schools and even if they couldn't, uh, parents couldn't pay the, the cost that's on the books, uh, we, we're willing to fill those seats because those seats remaining empty don't serve anybody's purpose. And uh, every bit of income that comes in helps us to pay for the cost of the whole. So, I so think they've got to you're right. call up the parish priest or call up the parish principal and say, I have $250 a month. Can my kid go to your school? And because it's new, now is the moment to take that opportunity. Because otherwise, I don't know how the church regrows. And that's, I want to I make sure I close with this. You, you ad, admonish people, a good skepticism is always moderated by hope, humility, and prudence. Cynicism is a very different creature. I don't want to be cynical about the future of the church, but I do see it kind of drifting left, uh, uh, fading uh, on quicksand, afraid. 
I actually think the church in America is afraid, Archbishop. Do you agree with me about that? I, I agree with you. I make a distinction in the book between cynicism and skepticism. Correct. And I think there's a really big difference. I think we need to be skeptical about the future because we really don't know. But the church is afraid. And uh, we're, we're afraid of uh, the truth. And we're afraid of the culture in which we live. And that, that leads to paralysis and inaction. So I think that uh, we need to overcome our fear and have great confidence in Jesus Christ and then risk things. You know, the churches often risk things for the, for the good, the, the true, and, and the beautiful. And we, could, we need to continue doing that. You know, we, we what, built our Catholic school system in the face of what we thought was the in, invasion of our religious freedom by the dominant Protestant community. And uh, the people who built the Catholic school system had far fewer resources than, than the poorest people in the church today. And so we need, to, we need to risk for the future. But they had a commitment that many Catholics today don't have, and that's probably the big difference. Um, we can talk about why that is. And you, you spend some time talking about Vatican II, and there was nothing wrong with Vatican II. You write that quite explicitly. There was a lot wrong in how it was sold, at least in America. There was a lot wrong in what it was supposed to have done and the dominant culture uh, of the ideologues. And I liked your chapter on ideology quite a lot because ideology does turn people into fanatics and fanatics turn to destroying other people's lives. It's all laid out in things worth dying for. Um, you, have to win the, you have to win the intellectual war first. Who's doing that for us? What, what you quote old people like Henry D. Lubeck and other people like, who's doing it right now? Well, you're in California right now. One of the, the great intellectuals of the church in the United States today is Bishop Robert Barron, who is one of the auxiliary or assistant bishops of the Diocese of Los Angeles. I really hope you get him on your show someday because he's really extraordinarily bright. He was, a, in some sense, a disciple of Cardinal Francis George of Chicago, who was the best and brightest of all the bishops I've known and in my many years as a member of the Catholic Church. And Robert Barron does an extraordinarily good job among the, the cler clergy of our country. I think he's probably the most prominent. But many of the leaders of the church today, the greater number of leaders of the church today, Roman Catholic Church today, are lay people. Uh, some of them you've mentioned at the, in, in today's conversation as intellectual leaders, but there's also a lot of very clever and creative evangelists among the laity in the Catholic Church. Uh, one thing, one group I'm very familiar with and also proud of is, is FOCUS, which is the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, which have learned a lot from our Protestant brothers and sisters on how to do campus ministry, but have been extraordinarily effective in, in uh, facing the culture today. Uh, I, I, I'm thinking of, I, there's many individuals I could mention, I probably should mention any of them because I'd have to mention all of them, but they're the, the, the lay leaders are doing far more for the good of the church today than the clergy leaders are. I, I like the way you handle it, but you said your that. heroes are John Paul II, John Paul the Great, and Benedict. And you left it at that because you didn't want to leave anybody out. You're very kind towards Francis, who you served in a synod with and who you welcomed to Philadelphia. Uh, my question is, from those positioned in the synod, where's the Roman Catholic Church in the world strongest in terms of its actual growth and appreciation of doctrine, because it came to America originally, flowered, and is now in a period of great distress. Where is it flower? It's not China. In China, they're on the ropes and they're being persecuted. In Nigeria, they're being killed. Where is it flowering, Archbishop? Well, first of all, in terms of the Western world, the, the Catholic 
churches flourishing mostly in the United States of America, despite the fact that we are diminishing. There is a vitality here that's really, truly extraordinary. Uh, and the, the Orthodox Catholics in the United States are an extraordinary group of people and are extraordinarily committed. In terms of the world, um, Nigeria is one of the places where it's flourishing, even though it's severely uh, persecuted, uh, basically by you know, the conflict between Islam and Christianity. That's where the real difficulties in Nigeria are taking place. But our, our, our biggest growth is in Africa. Uh, you know, one of the, the great joys of serving at the two recent synods I attended was coming to meet some of the leadership of the church in Africa. The uh, African bishops as a body, and you know, almost universally as a body, are the kind of people that I would want to be my bishop. They're really extraordinary people, both in terms of their intellectual capacity and uh, their courage. And so I was very, very much enthused by what I, I met uh, on that level in the church. It's true also in, in among the leadership of Asia uh, and uh, places like India in Asia, but it, it's, it was really strongest in my mind. Uh, Things Worth Dying For concludes with a, an essay on friendship, which I greatly appreciate, Archbishop. It's what I wrote my senior thesis about a thousand years ago, and it was on Cicero, Madison, and Montaigne. You use a couple of other experts, but you use Thomas More and his great friend, the bishop, and I didn't know anything about the bishop. You want to tell people about their story? Well, the, the church in England at the time of Thomas More, the time of Henry VIII, uh, was uh, culturally uh, interwoven with all of, all of life. But at the time when Henry decided that he wanted to become the head of the church, uh, most of the bishops uh, sided with Henry against the, the Pope, uh, with the exception of, uh, I think there were three bishops. Two of them were retired men, one was an active bishop. His name was John Fisher. and uh, you know, he eventually, uh, he was very uh, prominent in the life of the royal family, actually, at one time. And then eventually he was, uh, was martyred because of his uh, refusal to submit to the political authority of Henry VIII over the life of the church. A good friend of his was Thomas More, who was a lawyer like yourself. Uh, I think most people know him from uh, A Man for All Seasons, a wonderful play and, and movie. It's one of my favorite movies, actually. Um, and, and so he certainly gets much more attention than John Fisher, but both of them died for the same principles nearly the same time. And I think, I've always said, I think it's really appropriate that Thomas More is more known and more popular because the church is basically lay people and, and clergy aren't as important as people tend to think them. We're an essential part of the church, but we're not the most important part of the church. The most important part of the church are all the baptized. And those of us who are clergy are also members of the baptized and that's more important than being an ordained clergy is being a baptized Christian. And, and, and for the church to be who she is, the laity have to assume co-responsibility for leadership in the church. And, uh, you know, when you and I were growing up, the clergy were clearly seen as leaders of the church and the uh, lay people were seen as their helpers. But we don't see that anymore. We, we're going back to the earlier pattern of the church that was present in Acts of the Apostles where most of the evangelists were lay people. They weren't clergy, and, uh, and the clergy were helping them rather than them helping the clergy. And I think that's the real model of the church, where we're here to help the baptized faithful, and the uh, baptized faithful are the ones who can take leadership of Christianity in the world. You know, the, the lay people are what's going to change the world, are going to evangelize the world. Beginning and the with emphasis, 
the emphasis at the end of the book is and find your friends in the faith. Because if you haven't got Absolutely. friends in the faith, you're not going to hang on to it. You've got to have people like uh, Fisher and Moore who were good friends to turn back. And I wanted to close on that story. I didn't know about the uh, the church outside of Rome where Peter turned around, Archbishop. I didn't know that either. I know a lot of American. Novel. Yeah, uh, tell us about that. Well, you know, I actually uh, bought it for my Kindle recently because uh, I just thought I hadn't read this book for a long time. It, it comes from the 1930s, I think, or 40s, and was written by a Polish author whose name I don't remember right now. But there was a legend that it's based on that, you know, Peter, when he was facing the possibility of martyrdom in Rome, uh, got cold feet and decided decided to get out of there. And as he was heading out of town, uh, he met Jesus, who asked him, where are you going, Peter? Uh, I'm in Rome. And so Peter turned around and went back. And where are you going? Uh, in Latin is Quo Vadis, where are you going? And that's the name of the book. It was it actually became a movie. Uh, I yeah. don't remember if it was called Quo Vadis or not, but it was a really, for me, it was a good movie because I, I loved movies like that when I was a child. It may be terrible if you look at it now, but I thought it was really good. Was it Leon Uris? I can't, I, I remember singing around, I've never read Quo Vadis, now I have to go read it, but I didn't know that that church was there. Obviously you do. So, Archbishop, things worth dying for. You are now, quote, retired. You're the least retired person I know, and you're not retiring in the book. What's next for you? Well, I'm anxious for the, the lockdown to end so I can begin to visit my family and friends once again. I, you know, I retired three weeks before the lockdown, so I've spent <laughs> most of this uh, period of time in forced retirement, which isn't what I was looking for at all. So I'm looking forward to some ability. To, I like to go to I like movies like you do. I yep. would go every weekend if I could, you know. Yep. But the theaters aren't open yet here in Philadelphia. I think they may be open in California, but they're not open here yet. And uh, There are no new so, movies. <laughs> there's nothing to <laughs> see. They're open, but there's nothing to see. Well, I, I do watch movies, uh, Warner Brother movies, I guess, now are on HBO. Uh, yep. They open up simultaneously here and in theaters. Uh, but, I'm, I, you know, movies aren't the most important thing in my life, but they are important. I, you know, they're a reflection of our culture. They're a distraction from uh, the boredom of ordinary life. Um, and they refresh me to become more involved in life as God gives it to me. So I, I'm in good health. I hope that uh, I do some travel. I'll be doing some speaking. And uh, it's hard to keep me quiet. So I'll write articles about uh, matters that disturb me in our culture. And I'll continue to listen to you, Hewitt, every morning at six o'clock Eastern time. And that's and sobering, it's Archbishop. That's always sobering to me to know that you're listening. I can't get anything wrong. I can't be theologically incorrect or I'll get an email. You, you are well, a great correspondent. Patience. You are a thank great you. friend. Uh, the reason I'm back an active Catholic uh, is because of the Archbishop 20 years ago. So, Archbishop, good to see you. You look great. Things worth dying for, America. Go and get it. Enjoy it. Have a holy good Friday and a wonderful, glorious Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'll talk to you on Monday. Thank you.